0: Good evening, everyone. How's the sound in the back? Okay. And uh, good evening to those online at home and also good morning and good afternoon to those who are listening to the recording. It's very sweet, this kind of ritual space that we're in, gathering in the evening time in the middle of winter these long nights and at home I can see those of you with fires going and candles and see your pets every now and again It's really rejoicing in this gathering of all of us here in this room and then feeling the spread of our community really all over the world so thank you to those who are sitting at home and all over in your respective places
1: yeah. When I was a little
0: girl, every winter solstice, my family would do a ritual. It's all the women in my family. My mother, sometimes my grandmother would join. All of my aunties, a lot of eccentric aunties. Sometimes my friends would be invited. This Celtic ritual was carried down through my family. My mother in particular was very committed to these rituals marking the turning of the year. So we would go to my auntie's living room, and it would be a lot like this, you know, low light, a lot of candles, and we would gather. My mother would always lead the ritual with a reading and a reflection. And then she would move around the room and put a pinch of salt on each of our tongues. She would come, you know, directly and say to me, taste the breath of death, salt on my tongue. And then e- each of us in our turn would go down to the floor and lie on the earth curled up in the dark all the candles out. And it was a symbolic dying, dying of the year, a very participatory and deliberate descent into the darkness, into the unknown. I remember feeling all curled up on the earth and feeling the steadiness of the earth beneath me, the companionship of my family, all these women around me, and also the mystery of it. Is this what it's like to be dead? You know, and a kind of long silence has always felt interminable that we would all stay very silent and quiet there. And then my mother, again, get up, light one candle, and come around to each of us, pull us to our feet, and say, Taste the sweetness of life. And we would have honey and sometimes apple. And the sense of, you know, as a little person, oh, I'm born. <laughs> What's going to happen? Who will I be this year? I don't know yet. The magic of those evenings is so indelible for a variety of reasons. The time of year, the winter solstice, is always so powerful. These long nights the slant of the sun the quality of light. And I think for me in particular, it's so powerful, this encounter with symbolic death, witnessing the death of the year. And also a sense of welcoming the unknown. Here we are, turning into a new season. What's to come? We don't know. But in particular, in alignment with what we've been saying all along, I think for me, it was the sense of company. You know, I was often the only little one in the room. It was all these grown people doing this ritual together in the sense that it was gonna be okay because we were there doing it together, gathered, deliberate, a matrilineal line. So, retreat. Here we are. We're doing a kind of similar ritual over the course of the week, honoring the turning, witnessing the change, and confronting all of our difficult parts, whether that's symbolic kind of dying. Certainly in reflecting on the year, there's been many losses. And just in talking to some of you today, knowing there's so much we're holding in the silence and the stillness, we confront all of it, the doubts,
1: the ambivalence, the griefs, the fear, all of the
0: hindrances, these arise front and center, technicolor, So, you might not have known it, maybe you did when you signed up, but it's so courageous what you're doing. So courageous. And so hard, you know, we encounter all of our bad habits, our cruel states of mind, the fatigue, the wanting to give up.
1: So in this talk, I'm really wanting to honor the
0: courage and the bravery in each of us. And I'll offer some reflections, say what I can to support through these difficulties, not all difficult. There's a lot of beauty to this practice, too. But I think this time of year, this particular retreat, we're interested in, in going to the difficult and embracing the mystery. The unknown
1: and discovering what's there. What do we have yet to learn?
0: So often in the silence and the encounter with all of our demons, our difficulties. We throw up all our defenses. And these sometimes come in the form of the nivaranas. This is difficult? I think I'm just going to go to sleep. Or the mind gets angry, or you just need something pleasant to dull the pain a little bit. So it's why we talk so much about the hindrances, is knowing a kind of response to difficulty. But there's such a a much longer list. There's the fight, flight, freeze response. We're becoming literate in all of these responses, all the difficulties. We might add to that list anxiety. Or Oren spoke last night about all the internalized oppressions that we have and we see when we're here. The ways parts of us have been invisibilized, marginalized, outrightly oppressed. So the list is long, and I'd like to focus in on one in particular tonight, but knowing that the instructions for how to work with any of these are often the same. So I want to focus in on fear, on the path. Knowing fear can come in so many guises. It can be just the slightest sense of anxiety or worry. And all the way on the spectrum to full-blown panic and terror. I think in these times, the world is really scary, isn't it? And maybe it's always been this scary. It's always been this dangerous but we've been invited to see a whole other level over the past few years. And I think with climate and all of the other calamities, we're probably going to see some more.
1: So working with fear, what's
0: your particular response to fear? Do you ignore it? Do you get really strong and brave? Do you collapse? So we need to learn our natural responses so we can work more skillfully when these skills arise, (laughs) when these states arise. (laughs) They can become our superpower if we know them well. So I'll share a story about a particular teacher of mine who's a very good teacher in the face of fear and danger. Her name is Machik Labjan. Her picture is on the back altar. She's on the far right from my position. She was a Tibetan yogini who lived in the 11th and 12th century. She was mother of 3, but in Tibet is very well known for her practice of cutting or "chut" in Tibetan. So what she would do is she went to all the scariest places. And in Tibetan cosmology, demons and ghosts and ghouls, zombies, all of these are as real as any of us. They're inhabiting the space just as we are. And so Machik would go to the places where these demons hang out, right? Far remote caves in the mountains, snow mountains, or the sky burial grounds where often they would bring corpses up to the high part in the mountains so that the birds of prey and other wild animals would come feed on the corpses. Of course, just like our cemeteries, we know they're inhabited by ghosts. And let alone wild animals, tigers, all the scary beings that come. So Machik would go practice there alone. And she's the one woman who is predominant in all of the Tibetan lineages known for this practice. So her practice includes a drum and blowing on a thigh bone trumpet. Very fierce practice. And what she did in her practice was offer her body that which she's most attached to. She would offer it to all the scary beings by way of liberating them. And the text and the practice is so beautiful. You know, it's offering, here, take this, take this. My most precious possession, I offer it for your liberation. All these suffering ghosts and scary monsters and demons, eat this so that you may be free.
1: Like the ultimate act of generosity and bravery.
0: So Machik, Machik, her name means the one mother from LAP, which is Eastern Tibet. She has four pieces of advice for us on the path. Machik says, confess all your
1: hidden faults. Help those you think you cannot help. Anything that you're attached to, give that up. Let it go. And go to places that scare you. So how's that for meditation
0: instructions? (laughs) confess all your hidden faults. Anything you're attached to, let it go. Find those you think you can't help and help them. And go to places that scare you. I would say... You are doing that now, even though you might not have signed up for it. This is what we're doing here. And often when we're brave enough to do that, we're so surprised. Everything's different than what we thought. Sometimes it's very disorienting on the path, but it's ultimately, I think, deeply freeing. I've shared with some of you that Nico and I have been practicing in an extended retreat for the past 13 months. We've been in the mountains in Oregon, mostly in silence, in a remote place where I have a little cabin, rustic cabin, no electricity, only cold running water, wood heat, but it's still heat. (laughs) Uh, Nico has been living in a canvas tent, just down the path away, in a huge snowsuit to stay warm. And so, this—we just came out last week to come to this retreat. And this practice, this year of practice, was has been long planned, a lot of aspiration and saving and planning, so we could go do this. And the intention behind it was to do a lot of these practices, Machi Glebdran's practice, and also another woman on the back altar whose name is Niguma. She lived in Kashmir in the ninth century and is known for these subtle body practices. We're working with the subtle body in some ways like we've been doing in Qigong to release all the stuck places, knowing that we hold all of this fear, trauma, intergenerational hurt, cruelty, all of this we hold in our subtle body. And so through these practices, we release them. So we went into this retreat with these intentions. And it was about a little earlier than this time of year last year. Very long nights. No electricity. Just a single candle. There's a lot of enthusiasm and excitement for getting to do this thing. We'd aspired to do we had this very strict structure a lot of silence we were checking in once a week otherwise in silence uh, practicing on our own and very quickly in the retreat I encountered fear just the sense of being so alone in the big wilderness and you know anything could happen at any time go hiking and see bear tracks knowing there's mountain lion that live there And it's pretty remote, but some neighbors, you know, and someone could just drive up the road at any time and come in. At night, especially, I just felt so vulnerable listening to every sound. There's lots of sounds in the woods, turns out. The mice are running around and the wood rats and you can hear the owls and the coyotes howling. So sitting. Sitting sitting, sitting for so many hours just working with this fear and knowing my logical mind, it's fine, right? Pretty safe. Partner is just like 15 minutes away. It's close. But still fear. And who knows how to interpret this, but often in the late night, early morning, in the dark, I would feel like I had presences in the cabin with me. Visitations, a certain energetic shift and I would think I saw something. And I'm already on high alert, my nervous system. So interesting to work with these beings who I felt were mostly not benevolent, wanting something, you know, and how do I how do I work with this? So I was diligent <laughs> night after night through the winter last year. It was about four or five months in when I really thought I was doing fine. Did my practice late at night, not sleeping, then had a really full blown panic attack. Never had anything like that before. Just heart pounding, electricity coursing through my body, shaking, and this my heart was doing all this strange stuff, like palpitating, but then also these long pauses without anything, and then a huge beat. We're far from the hospital, and just sitting and working with this, like visceral fear, animal fear, and thinking, I really could be dying right now. It feels a little, like funny to say that, but these were the thoughts that was, that was running through my head in the middle of the night. So a lot of the practice was encountering death, or my fear of it. It could happen at any time. so afraid you know i I was compassionate after many hours of practicing with this panic i broke our rule of silence and i went and got him (laughs) had some accompaniment which felt skillful in the moment but still you know all night shaking electricity it went on for months not that level but these funny heart sensations and when i talked to my tibetan teacher He's like, oh yeah, there's a name for that. It's called Soklung. Lung. And it happens as we were doing all of these subtle body practices. I think Nico mentioned it yesterday. These places of stuckness can get released. Whatever we haven't processed or in story, right? Whatever we're holding, the rage, the anxiety, the grief, all of this eventually will get released we keep practicing. And for my particular case, I could see The first arrow of deep pain, fear in the body, not being able to control it, not knowing what to do, a lot of unknown, a lot of just shaky energy, like plugged into a light socket, electricity. But so first arrow and then watching the second arrow of judgment come. Oh, if I was practicing better, I wouldn't be so afraid oh, this is one of those phases that should have happened like way earlier on in my practice. I should be way beyond this by now. Shame, all these people supporting me and here I am feeling like a failure. So I could hear those second and third and fourth arrows, those voices around the edges trying to come in. And lucky enough, I had practiced enough that I understood, I knew that sutta, the first arrow, the second arrow. And rather than follow those thoughts of judgment and shame, I did two things. The first was qigong, knowing that that kind of movement, some of what we're doing other movements too, more Tibetan kind of yogas, that are meant to break up some of those stuck patterns. Very much a refuge for me, the movement. And the second one was, um, oh, there's so many, but poetry. Poetry. You know, in the mysteries of the heart and the path that's not linear and so spiral and so unexpected and so ineffable and indescribable and not logical. I had to turn to this language of the heart. And Poetry felt so much more evocative of what I was feeling. So here's just one for you. This is called The Thing Is. The thing is to love life, to love it even when you have no stomach for it. And everything you've held dear crumbles like burnt paper in your hands. Your throat filled with the silt of it. When grief sits with you, it's tropical heat thickening the air, heavy as water, more fit for gills than lungs when grief weights you down like your own flesh, only more of it, an obesity of grief, you think, how can a body withstand this? Then you hold life like a face between your palms, a plain face, no charming smile, no violet eyes, and you say, yes, I will take you. I will love you again. I think this is what I was learning, still learning. I will love you anyway. Completely struck with terror, numb, frozen, just trying to get through the day. Also wonder struck at times surrendering to it and feeling like this humanness is so much bigger i can't really hold it by myself and so surrendering to great compassion to these beings kuan yin and others machik and niguma who i could sort of ask to accompany me with all of this i was trying to hold Susan Piver is a Buddhist writer. She tells a story of visiting Auschwitz. She says, Our tour guide was a Polish man who lived a few miles away. Describing the horrors of Auschwitz was his job and had been for close to a decade. We followed behind him as he described the purpose of each building and the evil and unimaginable suffering that took place at every turn. At one point, I stood next to him as we waited to enter a particular section of the camp. "'What is it like to live so close to a place like this?' I asked. Without skipping a beat, he answered, "'How far away is far away enough?' And she says, "'I will never, ever forget his words.'" And the power that can be sourced by stepping into what is most brutal as a means of protection.
1: So there's beauty
0: in staying close to the fear, the grief, whatever difficulty is arising. We stay close to the unknown. We're heading into the mystery, embracing these long nights.
1: And perhaps they're all the more beautiful because we don't know everything they hold.
0: We don't turn away. And you've probably already seen how those moments of courage really give birth to such beauty. Courage, confidence, seeing things you didn't know before, healing, Softens us and it makes the world more lovable. You know, we say, Yes, I'll love you again,
1: even in all the brokenness.
0: So, not turning away. A journalist and author I like, her name is Tanya Talaga. She's an Ojibwe Canadian author and activist. Her book is Seven Fallen Feathers Racism, Death, and Hard Truths in a Northern City. She says that often in our scramble to prove that evil doesn't exist, we deny history. We paper over it and we name it as accidental. And this is often what's happening, isn't it? We're trying to just paper over and make it somehow okay. Even inside. And there's it's actually not a problem. We're just trying to be okay. So all of our defenses all of our ways of distraction. It's not necessarily a problem, but what we're doing here is becoming aware of those so that we can have more agency and choice. When do I confront? And when do I
1: resource? Take a break. So again, Machiks, confess all your hidden
0: faults and go to places that scare you but how do we do that? Sure, easy enough for me to say, but when we're in the throes of something big and difficult, what do we do? Well, I think first it's reversing our narrative that a, a lot of Western culture, dominant culture, says that if we're struggling, it's somehow our fault and we're a failure. So can we reverse that and say, hey, I'm struggling, right? Bow to the Nivarana and know this is what I'm here to do. That it's noble work. It's why the Buddha named it the first noble truth of unreliability and stress. So important to have faith in what you're doing and know there's wisdom in the wounds. That's how we grow. And then... We do all the practical things that we've been hearing about or in so beautifully taught this morning about titrating, right? Small bites, small bites at a time. Some of these big demons that we're working with, we can't go full on, head on into them. It's not healthy, right? We want to really be aware of what flooding, we're about to be flooded or overwhelmed And skillfully, we don't necessarily go over that line. We titrate just a tiny bit at a time. Or the pendulation, you know, touching in on the pain and then going to something pleasant. Resourcing with the earth, knowing you can lie your body on the earth. She can hold it, right, much bigger than we can. So titrating, pendulating, and the resourcing What's your favorite resource? Is it the slow walking that can help metabolize a lot of emotional difficulty? Is it knowing when it's time to go get a cup of tea? That's the most compassionate thing you can do. Or just placing a hand on the breath, you know, on the body, feeling the movement of the breath,
1: feeling the hands and feet.
0: So we're building the responsiveness that knows what to do that doesn't turn away and can respond with wisdom
1: and compassion. So
0: another poem, this is called The Mosquito Among the Raindrops. It's Teddy Macker. The Mosquito Among the Raindrops It's equivalent to getting hit, the scientists say, by a school bus and hit every 20 seconds. And the mosquito lives. In fact, she doesn't even try to avoid the drops. No zigzagging, no ducking, no hiding under eaves. How does she do it? No resistance to the force. She hitches a ride on the blow, a stowaway on that which brings her down. She becomes one with the drops knowing that to fly again, she must
1: fall. So in group this
0: morning, somebody asked a really good question. They asked, why is it so hard to be with ourselves? What do you think? Why is it so hard? does didn't seem like it should be easy enough, especially in a place like this. We're so cared for. It's so comfortable and beautiful and warm and food out, you know, so beautifully abundant. But why is it so hard? One of my Tibetan teachers, when I asked him that, he said, we're most afraid of space. That's what we're most afraid of. The space of the schedule. Space of your own mind. And in daily life, I know this is certainly true for me, I'm filling up the spaces in my calendar. <laughs> right? Even downtime, there's a little bit of a like, oh, but what am I going to do? So painful when I see that. So conditioned to just be running all the time. So we fear the simplicity. We fear stillness. We fear the dark of this time of year. So many ways we're afraid of space, the unpredictability of it, the uncontrollable nature of space, its boundlessness, having to wait for a diagnosis, not knowing if there's a cure. We fear new situations and new relationships. All of it is understandable, but what we hear in the Dharma is that the solution isn't certainty. It's not about getting it all perfect and working it out as your schedule's, you know, full and good and got it all together, the way we're often taught. That's not the solution to this fear we have. So what's the solution? Well, here we fall asleep and we get cravings (laughs) and we fill with doubt to work a bit with the nivaranas, the hindrances. But as we encounter the biggest space in our own minds and noticing how all the defenses we throw up, the planning, the strategizing, the worrying, all the spinning thoughts, the judgments, we see how futile those are. We start to see how all of our attempts in the midst of this boundless space, they don't really work so well. So the same teacher, same Tibetan teacher, tells a story about how when we're practicing, we start to realize that it's like falling through space. It's like we jumped out of a plane. And then at a certain point in practice, we realize we don't have a parachute. I think that was a little bit of my terror in the nighttime. But then another phase comes, and we realize there's no ground either. So how is it to really embrace the space?
1: Because in the end, space is what liberates the freedom in space. There's no edges. There's no hierarchies, no systems.
0: So we're afraid of what liberates us, actually. And as we become familiar with the mystery, we start to realize the freedom in it.
1: We start to leave ourselves more space, to be
0: okay with the exhale, to find that that being curled up on the earth in the dark is maybe not so much like the tomb of death, but maybe it's also a kind of womb, the spacious, floaty, you're talking about Oren's son, his experience in the womb, you know, how comfortable that might be, It's floaty. Pretty spacious, I think. That's how I imagine it, at least. (sighs) Then we come out and we have these like heavy bodies and they're so sensitive and so difficult. But in practice, we're really releasing back, releasing back into the space. Another poem, this one is by Lee Young Lee. It says, Look at the birds. Even flying is born out of nothing. The first sky is inside you, open at either end of day. The work of wings was always freedom, fastening one heart to every falling thing. The work of wings was always freedom, fastening one heart to every falling thing. So perhaps the nature of our minds as space is uh, the work
1: of wings, It's always freedom.
0: Himachodran says, just as a seed contains the tree, letting go contains the entire teaching on emptiness. On abiding in the fearless state. As such, letting go is the consummate teaching on how to deal with fear. Let go. Keep letting go. Let go again. Don't try to become one with space. Recognize that you are space, and that somehow this is the ultimate knowing. It leads, I'm told, to bliss, liberation, and omniscience, the natural ability to know what is knowable in every
1: moment. And the magic of that
0: letting go is that it doesn't lead to just sort of empty void, right? Sometimes space feels that way, but we start to realize that the space is full. And it's really full of this responsiveness of the
1: heart. It's full of compassion. But the nature of space is to love, is to be connected, is to know belonging. That's the nature of it. So we're training to rest in this kind of loving awareness that's full and empty and boundless.
0: One of my favorite stories from the suttas is about 500 yogis, just like us, who were going into the forest to practice for three months during the rainy season. So they got all ready. They picked a very beautiful forest grove that was near a village that could support them with alms and medicine. They went off full of vigor to practice for three months. But as soon as they got there, they set up their schedule, they set up their whole situation. They realized that this grove, this forest grove, was inhabited by all those unseen beings I was talking about. The ghosts and ghouls and demons and tree spirits, devas, they lived in that forest. And they weren't so happy about sharing it with these, even though they were sincere, these sincere practitioners. The devas were not happy. And so they started filling the forest with scary things, startling sounds at night and really icky smells wafting through the air and these visions, scary visions of monsters were happening. And these yogis were full of terror, probably having panic attacks at night. So they went running back to the Buddha from the forest, all of them. They said, we can't practice here. Not a good forest to practice in. It's haunted. It's all these smelly things going on. No, we need a a different forest. (laughs) Can you provide that for us, please, Buddha? And the Buddha, like a good parent, he gave a beautiful teaching. And the teaching he gave was the Karaniya Metta Sutta, which is some of what we heard from Carol today. In the sense that wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. So he said, you have to go back to that grove and do your metta practice for these spirits, for all the unseen beings. Wish them love and happiness and well-being and ease. So however reluctantly, all the 500 practitioners went back and they did that very diligently practice metta. And it wasn't too long that these devas and tree spirits began to appreciate the yogis and their practice. And instead of filling the forest with scary things, they filled the forest with flowers and perfumes and sun, and all the pleasant things. <laughs> I think the story ends with all 500 practitioners gaining enlightenment during that three months. <sighs> And in some ways, I think we can feel that here. Here we are, 2600 years later, doing a similar thing. And because there's been so much practice on this land, it feels like there's so much support. See, maybe you felt that too. You feel the trees and the spirits here protecting us, keeping us safe, supporting our practice. Such a refuge. Such a refuge.
1: To the power of Love,
0: of relying on lineage, practicing kindness for ourselves and others, such an antidote to fear and all of the other difficulties. And this accompaniment, like the circle of women that I practiced in ceremony with so young, that it's okay to confront the unknown, even perhaps the potential of death knowing that we're all part of this. We're part of the family of things. We're never alone.
1: And so in working with all these difficulties on the path,
0: the anxiety, the restlessness, the not knowing quite what to do, I mean, to make big life decisions, a sense of doubt in yourself and the practice, We need so much friendly accompaniment, so much patience, so much care and kindness.
1: And we remember,
0: we have the wisdom to know that this is the path. This is the practice. We're not doing anything wrong. It shouldn't be any easier. And through it, we're really softened. We learn about slowing down and leaning into the spaciousness. And we keep going together through all the scary forests and the open meadows. And again and again, as we keep encountering the difficulty, there's confidence that grows that sees, oh, I actually know how to be with this. Oh sure, all this difficulty is arising and I can place my hand on the earth, let her steady me, and know that I can do it. If you reflect on all the things you've been through already, it can be with this moment,
1: with all that it holds. And really trusting that there's
0: so much beauty that awaits through that courage. Again and again, releasing into the mystery and trusting that free fall in space, no parachute, no ground. So thank you so much for your courage to confess your hidden faults with us and for the bravery to go to all the scary places. And I think collectively we can trust that as we do this, we're building the wisdom to help even those we think we can't help.
1: That's what we're doing. So a deep bow to your
0: practice. I'll just close with this dedication of merit, this wish that in all of our difficulty, our willingness to stay again and again, to resource, to accompany ourselves, may all of these efforts benefit our own freedom and well-being but may they also ripple out, so that even all of the ones who are lonely and scared and not knowing quite what to do, may they also feel the force and the power of what's happening here. May our practice benefit all. May it further our waking up together and our learning to belong to each other. So we have time for walking. I encourage the walking. (laughs) Heard a lot of words and it's a lot. So maybe enjoy some walking practice. Just shake it out. And then we'll come back at nine for a final evening sit. Maybe in the dark. (laughs) Okay. Thank you. Thank you for listening.